Volume Three, Chapter One of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man, by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Volume Three, Chapter One. Hear you not the rushing sound of the coming tempest? Do you not behold the clouds open and destruction lurid and dire pour down upon the blasted earth? See you not the thunderbolt fall and are deafened by the shout of heaven that follows its descent? Feel you not the earth quake and open with agonizing groans while the air is pregnant with shrieks and wailings, all announcing the last days of man? No, none of these things accompanied our fall. The balmy air of spring, breathed from nature's ambrosial home, invested the lovely earth which, wakened as a young mother about to lead forth in pride her beauteous offspring to meet their sire, who had been long absent. The buds decked the trees, the flowers adorned the land. The dark branches, swollen with seasonable juices, expanded into leaves, and the variegated foliage of spring, bending and singing in the breeze, rejoiced in the genial warmth of the unclouded Empyrean. The brooks flowed, murmuring, the sea was waveless, and the promontories that overhung it were reflected in the placid waters. Birds awoke in the woods while abundant food for man and beast sprung up from the dark ground. Where was pain and evil? Not in the calm air or weltering ocean, not in the woods or fertile fields, nor among the birds that made the woods resonant with song, nor the animals that in the midst of plenty basked in the sunshine. Our enemy, like the calamity of Homer, trod our hearts, and no sound was echoed from her steps. With ills the land is rife, with ills the sea. Diseases haunt our frail humanity. Through noon, through night, on casual wing they glide, silent, a voice the power all-wise denied. Once man was a favorite of the Creator, as the royal psalmist sang, God had made him a little lower than the angels, and had crowned him with glory and honor. God made him to have dominion over the works of his hands, and put all things under his feet. Once it was so. Now is man lord of the creation? Look at him! Ha! I see plague! She has invested his form, is incarnate in his flesh has entwined herself with his being, and blinds his heaven-seeking eyes. Lie down, O oh man, on the flower-strown earth. Give up all claim to your inheritance. All you can ever possess of it is the small cell which the dead require. Plague is the companion of spring, of sunshine and plenty. We no longer struggle with her. We have forgotten what we did when she was not. Of old navies used to stem the giant ocean waves betwixt Indus and the Pole for slight articles of luxury. Men made perilous journeys to possess themselves of earth's splendid trifles, gems, and gold. Human labor was wasted, human life set at naught. 
now life is all that we covet. That this automation of flesh should, with joints and springs in order, perform its functions, that this dwelling of the soul should be capable of containing its dweller. Our minds, late spread abroad through countless spheres and endless combinations of thought, now retrench themselves behind this wall of flesh, eager to preserve its well-being only. We were surely sufficiently degraded. At first the increase of sickness in spring brought increase of toil to such of us who, as yet spared to life, bestowed our time and thoughts on our fellow-creatures. We nerved ourselves to the task. In the midst of despair we performed the tasks of hope. We went out with the resolution of disputing with our foe. We aided the sick and comforted the sorrowing turning from the multitudinous dead to the rare survivors, with an energy of desire that bore the resemblance of power, we bade them live. Plague sat paramount the while and laughed us to scorn. Have any of you, my readers, observed the ruins of an ant hill immediately after its destruction? At first it appears entirely deserted of its former inhabitants. In a little time, you see an ant struggling through the upturned mould. They reappear by twos and threes, running hither and thither in search of their lost companions. Such were we upon earth, wondering aghast at the effects of pestilence. Our empty habitations remained, but the dwellers were gathered to the shades of the tomb. As the rules of order and pressure of laws were lost, some began with hesitation and wonder to transgress the accustomed uses of society. Palaces were deserted, and the poor man dared at length, unreproved, intrude into the splendid apartments, whose very furniture and decorations were an unknown world to him. It was found that, though at first the stop put to all circulation of property, had reduced those before supported by the factitious wants of society to sudden and hideous poverty. Yet when the boundaries of private possession were thrown down, the products of human labor at present existing were more, far more, than the thin generation could possibly consume. To some among the poor this was matter of exultation. We were all equal now. Magnificent dwellings, luxurious carpets, and beds of down were afforded to all. Carriages and horses, gardens, pictures, statues, and princely libraries— there were enough of these even to superfluity, and there was nothing to prevent each from assuming possession of his share. We were all equal now, but near at hand was an equality still more levelling, a state where beauty and strength and wisdom would be as vain as riches and birth. The grave yawned beneath us all and its prospect prevented any of us from enjoying the ease and plenty which in so awful a manner was presented to us. Still the bloom did not fade on the cheeks of my babes, and Clara sprung up in years and growth unsullied by disease. We had no reason to think the sight of Windsor Castle peculiarly healthy, for many other families had expired beneath its roof. We lived, therefore, without any particular precaution, but we lived, it seemed, in safety. If Idris became thin and pale, it was anxiety that occasioned the change, an anxiety I could in no way alleviate. She never complained, 
but sleep and appetite fled from her. A slow fever preyed on her veins, her color was hectic, and she often wept in secret. Gloomy prognostications, care, and agonizing dread ate up the principle of life within her. I could not fail to perceive this change. I often wished that I had permitted her to take her own course and engage herself in such labors for the welfare of others as might have distracted her thoughts, but it was too late now. Besides that, with the nearly extinct race of man, all our toils grew near a conclusion. She was too weak. Consumption, if so it might be called, or rather the overactive life within her, which, as with Adrian, spent the vital oil in the early morning hours, deprived her limbs of strength. At night, when she could leave me unperceived, she wandered through the house, or hung over the couches of her children, and in the daytime would sink into a perturbed sleep, while her murmurs and starts betrayed the unquiet dreams that vexed her. As this state of wretchedness became more confirmed, and, in spite of her endeavours at concealment, more apparent, I strove, though vainly, to awaken in her courage and hope. I could not wonder at the vehemence of her care. Her very soul was tenderness. She trusted, indeed, that she should not outlive me if I became the prey of the vast calamity, and this thought sometimes relieved her. We had for many years trod the highway of life hand in hand and still thus linked we might step within the shades of death. But her children, her lovely, playful, animated children, beings sprung from her own dear side, portions of her own being, depositories of our loves, even if we died it would be comfort to know that they ran man's accustomed course. But it would not be so. Young and blooming as they were, they would die. And from the hopes of maturity, from the proud name of attained manhood, they were cut off for ever. Often with maternal affection she had figured their merits and talents exerted on life's wide stage. Alas for these latter days! The world had grown old and all its inmates partook of the decrepitude. Why talk of infancy, manhood, and old age? We all stood equal sharers of the last throes of time-worn nature. Arrived at the same point of the world's age, there was no difference in us. The name of parent and child had lost their meaning. Young boys and girls were level now with men. This was all true but it was not less agonizing to take the admonition home. Where could we turn and not find a desolation pregnant with the dire lesson of example? The fields had been left uncultivated, weeds and gaudy flowers sprung up, or where a few wheat-fields shewed signs of the living hopes of the husbandman, the work had been left half-way, the ploughman had died beside the plough, the horses had deserted the furrow, and no seedsman had approached the dead. The cattle unattended wandered over the fields and through the lanes. The tame inhabitants of the poultry-yard, balked of their daily food, had become wild. Young lambs were dropped in flower-gardens, and the cows stalled in the hall of pleasure. Sickly and few, the country people neither went out to sow nor reap, but sauntered about the meadows, or lay under the hedges when the inclement sky did not drive them to take shelter under the nearest roof. 
Many of those who remained secluded themselves. Some had laid up stores which would prevent the necessity of leaving their homes. Some deserted wife and child, and imagined that they secured their safety in utter solitude. Such had been Ryland's plan, and he was discovered dead and half-devoured by insects, in a house many miles from any other, with piles of food laid up in useless superfluity. Others made long journeys to unite themselves with those they loved, and arrived to find them dead. London did not contain above a thousand inhabitants, and this number was continually diminishing. Most of them were country people, come up for the sake of change. The Londoners had sought the country. The busy eastern part of the town was silent, or at most you saw only where, half from cupidity, half from curiosity, the warehouses had been more ransacked than pillaged. Bales of rich India goods, shawls of price, jewels and spices, unpacked strewed the floors. In some places the possessor had to the last kept watch on his store, and died before the barred gates. The massy portals of the churches swung creaking on their hinges, and some few lay dead on the pavement. The wretched female, loveless victim of vulgar brutality, had wandered to the toilet of high-born beauty, and, arraying herself in the garb of splendor, had died before the mirror which reflected to herself alone her altered appearance. Women whose delicate feet had seldom touched the earth in their luxury had fled in fright and horror from their homes, till, losing themselves in the squalid streets of the metropolis, they had died on the threshold of poverty. The heart sickened at the variety of misery presented, and when I saw a specimen of this gloomy change, my soul ached with the fear of what might befall my beloved Idris and my babes. Were they, surviving Adrian and myself, to find themselves protectorless in the world? As yet the mine alone had suffered. Could I forever put off the time when the delicate frame and shrinking nerves of my child of prosperity, the nursling of rank and wealth who was my companion, should be invaded by famine, hardship, and disease? Better die at once— better plunge a poignard in her bosom, still untouched by drear adversity, and then again sheathe it in my own. But no, in times of misery we must fight against our destinies, and strive not to be overcome by them. I would not yield, but to the last gasp resolutely defended my dear ones against sorrow and pain, and if I were vanquished at last, it should not be ingloriously. I stood at the gap, resisting the enemy, the impalpable, invisible foe, who had so long besieged us. As yet he had made no breach. It must be by care that he should not, secretly undermining, burst up within the very threshold of the temple of love at whose altar I daily sacrificed. The hunger of death was now stung more sharply by the diminution of his food. Or was it that before, the survivors being many, the dead were less eagerly counted? Now each life was a gem, each human breathing form of far, oh, far more worth than subtlest imagery of sculpted stone. And the daily, nay, hourly decrease visible in our numbers visited the heart with sickening misery. This summer extinguished our hopes. The vessel of society was wrecked, 
and the shattered raft which carried the few survivors over the sea of misery was riven and tempest-tossed. Man existed by twos and threes. Man, the individual who might sleep and wake and perform the animal functions, but man, in himself weak yet more powerful in congregated numbers than wind or ocean, man, the queller of the elements, the lord of created nature, the peer of demigods, existed no longer. Farewell to the patriotic scene, to the love of liberty and well-earned meed of virtuous aspiration. Farewell to crowded senate, vocal with the counsels of the wise, whose laws were keener than the sword-blade tempered at Damascus. Farewell to kingly pomp and warlike pageantry. The crowns are in the dust, and the wearers are in their graves. Farewell to the desire of rule and the hope of victory, to high-vaulting ambition, to the appetite for praise and the craving for the suffrage of their fellows. The nations are no longer. No senate sits in council for the dead. No scion of a time-honoured dynasty pants to rule over the inhabitants of a charnel house. The general's hand is cold, and the soldier has his untimely grave dug in his native fields, unhonoured though in youth. The market-place is empty. The candidate for popular favour finds none whom he can represent. The chambers of painted state farewell to midnight revelry and the panting emulation of beauty, to costly dress and birthday shoe, to title and the gilded coronet, farewell. Farewell to the giant powers of man, to knowledge that could pilot the deep drawing bark through the opposing waters of shoreless ocean, to science that directed the silken balloon through the pathless air, to the power that could put a barrier to mighty waters and set in motion wheels and beams and vast machinery that could divide rocks of granite or marble and make the mountains plain. Farewell to the arts, to eloquence, which is to the human mind as the winds to the sea, stirring and then allaying it. Farewell to poetry and deep philosophy, for man's imagination is cold, and his inquiring mind can no longer expatiate on the wonders of life, for there is no work, no device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest, to the graceful building which in its perfect proportion transcended the rude forms of nature, the fretted gothic and massy Saracenic pile, to the stupendous arch and glorious dome, the fluted column with its capital, Corinthian, Ionic, or Doric, the peristyle and fair entablature, whose harmony or form is to the eye's musical concord to the ear. Farewell to sculpture, where the pure marble mocks human flesh, and in the plastic expression of the cold excellencies of the human shape shines forth the god. Farewell to painting, the high-wrought sentiment and deep knowledge of the artist's mind in pictured canvas, to paradisical scenes where the stamped form of tempest and wildest uproar of universal nature encaged in the narrow frame. Oh, farewell, farewell to music and the sound of song, to the marriage of instruments where the concord of soft and harsh unites in sweet harmony, and gives wings to the panting listeners whereby to climb heaven and learn the hidden pleasures of the Eternals. Farewell to the well-trod stage. 
a truer tragedy is enacted on the world's ample scene that puts to shame mimic grief to high-bred comedy and the low buffoon farewell man may laugh no more alas to enumerate the adornments of humanity shoes by what we have lost how supremely great man was it is all over now he is solitary like our first parents expelled from paradise he looks back towards the scene he has quitted the high walls of the tomb and the flaming sword of plague lie between it and him like to our first parents the whole earth is before him a wide desert unsupported and weak let him wander through the fields where the unreaped corn stands in barren plenty through copses planted by his fathers, through towns built for his use. Posterity is no more. Fame and ambition and love are words void of meaning. Even as the cattle that grazes in the field, do thou, O deserted one, lie down at evening tide, unknowing of the past, careless of the future. For from such fond ignorance alone canst thou hope for ease. Joy paints its own colours every act and thought. The happy do not feel poverty, for delight is as a gold-tissued robe and crowns them with priceless gems. Enjoyment plays the cook to their homely fare and mingles intoxication with their simple drink. Joy strews the hard couch with roses and makes labour ease. Sorrow doubles the burthen to the bent-down back, plants thorns in the unyielding pillow, mingles gall with water, adds saltness to their bitter bread, clothing them in rags and strewing ashes on their bare heads. To our irredeemable distress every small and pelting inconvenience came with added force. We had strung our frames to endure the Adlian weight thrown on us. We sank beneath the added feather, chance threw on us. The grasshopper was a burthen. Many of the survivors had been bred in luxury. Their servants were gone, their powers of command vanished like unreal shadows. The poor even suffered various privations, and the idea of another winter like the last brought a fright to our minds. Was it not enough that we must die, but toil must be added? Must we prepare our funeral repast with labour, and with unseemly drudgery heap fuel on our deserted hearths? Must we with servile hands fabricate the garments soon to be our shroud? Not so. We are presently to die. Let us then enjoy to its full relish the remnant of our lives, sordid care of aunt. Menial labours and pains, slight in themselves, but too gigantic for our exhausted strength, shall make no part of our ephemeral existences. In the beginning of time, when as now man lived by families and not by tribes or nations, they were placed in a genial clime where earth fed them untilled in the balmy air and wrapped their reposing limbs with warmth more pleasant than beds of down. The south is the native place of the human race the land of fruits more grateful to man than the hard-earned saris of the north of trees whose boughs are as a palace roof of couches of roses and of the thirst-appeasing grape we need not there fear cold and hunger look at england 
The grass shoots up high in the meadows, but they are dank and cold, unfit bed for us. Corn we have none, and the crude fruits cannot support us. We must seek firing in the bowels of the earth, or the unkind atmosphere will fill us with rheums and aches. The labor of hundreds of thousands alone could make this inclement nook fit habitation for one man. To the south, then, to the sun, where nature is kind, where Jove has showered forth the contents of Amalthea's horn, and earth is garden. England, late birthplace of excellence and school of the wise, thy children are gone, thy glory faded. Thou, England, wert the triumph of man. Small favour was shewn thee by thy Creator, thou Isle of the North. A ragged canvas, naturally, painted by man with alien colours, but the hues he gave are faded, never more to be renewed. So we must leave thee, thou marvel of the world. We must bid farewell to thy clouds and cold and scarcity for ever. Thy manly hearts are still, thy tale of power and liberty at its close. Bereft of man, O little isle, the ocean waves will buffet thee, and the raven flap his wings over thee. Thy soil will be birthplace of weeds, thy sky will canopy barrenness. It was not for the rose of Persia thou wert famous, nor the banana of the east, nor for the spicy gales of India, nor the sugar groves of America, not for thy vines, nor thy double harvests, nor for thy vernal airs, nor solstitial sun, but for thy children, their unwearied industry and lofty aspiration. They are gone, and thou goest with them the oft-trodden path that leads to oblivion. Farewell, sad isle, farewell, thy fatal glory is summed, cast up and cancelled in this story. End of chapter 1